Good morning. This is Gaming Perspectives with Saul. Angeline. And today we're talking about something Saul wants to talk about. <laughs> anyway, so I was thinking about GMing as a whole. And if you're like a new GM or even an old GM, Game Master, who's been playing a while. He doesn't mean age-wise. He means been GMing for a while. Right, right. Not a veteran. Uh, not new to RPGs. So I was thinking about pl uh, playing to your strengths. As a GM. As a GM. I know there's a lot of super talented GMs out there, and you could see them on actual plays, or if you go to a, a local convention or even a big convention like Gen Con, you'll come across or play in games with people who are really good. They have all these things that make them a good GM. We've so, talked about being a good GM before, but right. this, is, this is more of a how does the gm come off as being good or right oh, what does he do that can help him to right. be better and i think there's a lot of things out there's more, i have a list but there's obviously a lot more things that will help a person become a better gm and when i say play to your strengths like for example there are a lot of gms out there who are really good at doing voices right that's a big deal especially in actual plays because actual plays Let's say like Critical Role, right? Which is like the number one thing I'm out there. I'm not sure you can use them as the best example because they're voice actors. Right. But I, what I'm saying is, is there's people out there who do do voices, who do do accents. And they're not voice actors, right? They're not on Critical Role. So I've, I've played in games where people have done that and they've been really fairly good at it. I mean, they're not professional quality voice actors, but they do accents and it, it's pretty plausible i mean they, they they do them really well now this could be a strength this is sauce number one his first on his list is what, what did you call it using voice what did you say you, you just said it yeah using using voices in your game to represent the different characters you know you change the voices of each each npc you play to now i would suggest that you don't do each npc player but pick somebody pick a couple of them maybe if right. you're if you're even good at doing voices or accents i always ask Saul not to do accents because right. he's not good at it i'm terrible <laughs> so i was talking about great gms and you, this is a, going to a convention or you know the internet's a good way of looking at how people gm and and the point of, of me sending anybody to the internet or to to conventions to see how other people gm is not necessarily to copy them right to to, to be exactly like them because you don't have the exact skills that those people have but you can definitely see how things work and then build on what you have right on your own talent so one of the talents is being able to do voices and voices doesn't have to be exact perfect accents and stuff like that for me it could be just a matter of talking for for a woman a female you could try to raise your octave a little bit nothing too it was dramatic extravagant, extravagant right i think it really works to a certain extent especially if you have an npc that's reoccurring and you give them a a voice or a style of, of what is it the vocal style or even an attitude yeah yeah exactly and that can come out on how you run the game and how you play the game as a as a gm or how you play that character and i think that's pretty neat i think you know we've talked about it in the past if when i run games I'm terrible at accents, right? I make I make fun of Jolene because she watches a lot of British television. I say, "Oh, I'll I'll make a 
a British accent. Which he doesn't. Which I try to do and I totally butcher it. And then I go, this is my Australian accent. and it's Which the, he doesn't. Which is the same accent except louder. And then this is my, my Scottish accent, which I just, they're all the same. So I, I just jokingly called in my accent. So we say it's not one of Saul's strengths. Right. So I understand that. But I guess if I really, really wanted to, I could go online. I'm sure there's some vocal coaches that will help you do accents online. I haven't tried it. I haven't, obviously, I haven't tried it. Yeah. And so I think, I think people who have a natural affinity for doing voices can use that in their game and you can hone that skill and make it better. And I think players really appreciate that because it really gives you that sense of immersion, I think. Whenever Saul gets on this topic, which is one of his favorite topics because he really enjoys games where there are GMs who who create different voices for different characters. I always think of Gollum in Lord of the Rings and uh, <laughs> the movie where he's talking to himself. And it always makes me laugh because it's not so much how you're doing the character. You don't have to do a voice. It's that people realize that you're you you're the GM and this person is the NPC that you're, no matter how you do the voice, right? Right. You can just change your, you don't have to change your voice. You can just inflect it differently or do something, some mannerism at the table when you're talking to people. And then they'll know that that's the NPC. Right. Without even. Without you having to say, now we're going to go and talk to Carol. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. And I think that's pretty neat. I think when people can, people, players can, uh, what is it? Figure out who you're talking, who they're talking to without having to exactly name. Oh, no, you're seeing Jervis for, 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 for you know, again. And you know, somebody, you know, the guy comes up and he starts talking to you and you know who he is just by the mannerisms or the voice inflection and stuff like that. Not necessarily a totally different voice or a total accent, but just little things that will make that characters stand out a little bit. That NPC. I think it's pretty cool. And I think if you really uh, want to check it, check out the, how to do it better, I'm sure there's things online you can watch. I'm, in fact, YouTube is your friend. Yes, I have come across it. I haven't checked them out. You know, I'm not gonna put any, I'm not gonna put any links, but I'm sure you could find some on your own. So next on my list was or is is pacing. Now this one's a tough one because pacing has has come up a lot lately in my in my gaming circles. When he says pacing, he doesn't mean standing up and walking back and forth. By the way. Yeah, I kind of do mean like that. No, don't, 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 don't. <laughs> You're such a dork. So pacing is is having the game move at a certain uh, rate of speed, going at a fun rate without any really lows in the action where it, the game kind of slows down even to a crawl. That's a pacing thing. And I, uh, I've not, not developed that skill very well. And I try and I try and... And what happens is, is that is like uh, Spirit of the Century said, you know, when there's a low in the action, just throwing the ninjas, right? When the players are kind of like spinning their wheels and stuff, and that has to do with pacing. So when you realize that the game is slowing down and you throw something at the players to get them excited, to wake them up, sort of, you know, that's uh, not figuratively, but figuratively, but not literally. That's pretty cool. I mean, that's part of pacing. The problem is pacing, if you were really good at it, it would never get into that low, right? You wouldn't allow it as a GM. Or you would do something to keep that pace moving forward. 
at a good rate. A lot of that has to do with planning, right? Because as you you plan out your adventure, you plan out the session. Okay. Not as in the players are going to do this and then I'm going to do this and that, but planning out. So this encounter, this is what I'm going to present. Right. And if your players are meandering around a room trying to find something and <laughs> they're like beating their heads against the wall trying to find your clue. Oh, yeah. Maybe you should give them your clue. Someone should step on it or something, right? Right, instead right, of right. Instead of forcing them to come up with 250 ideas and none of them are what you want them to do, so you're not going to give them the clue. Right. That's bad pacing. Pacing is they're not figuring it out or they're not figuring out the way you think they should. Right. Just go with whatever they're figuring out. Right. You know, even if, even if, if you really are dead set of the clue being in a certain location or you know, in a certain hidden cubby or whatever you want to call it. As soon as you sense a little bit of frustration or the wheels are spinning and they're getting nowhere, the next idea should be the place where they find it, right? Or, yeah, that's basically it. Because you don't want your game to stall in that sense. That's what pacing is about. Because if your players are stalled trying to figure something out, right? it's like beating your head against a wall trying to figure out yeah, what to do next. Yeah, I think that's pretty much fun. And that is not a good thing for <laughs> players. Pacing, I think, as a, as a GM, that's a little bit of leeway that you have to have with yourself. Not be so stuck on exactly this is how it should go. And if the players find an alternate way, that's what you have to go with at times. That's a different skill. That's a different skill, but it impacts pacing because if the player's ideas aren't working and, like you said, the, the game stalls, uh, I don't think people have fun when that happens. And that's how I think about pacing, right? You're... Your players, you've presented a situation to your players. They're doing everything that they can or coming up with their own ideas about what they want to do. And in, instead of letting them endlessly analyze it, because they can get into this analyzation session, right? Well, if we do this and people, there's a lot of, there's different types of players, right? Yeah. Some players are like, okay, let's make a plan and go. <clears throat> and some players are like, okay, I need to do... I need to give you 20 options, and <laughs> this is what I think the best one is, but I want to give them all to you now. So you know, if you're letting that happen, maybe you, you, you're going to walk away from the table for a few minutes and let them talk. They're having fun. That's fine. But don't let it go on for too long, right? Right. I mean, I think you're right. If, they're, if the players are all having fun, right? Yeah. I think let them plan, scheme. To their heart's content, because people do love that. Like Shadow Run is one yeah, of those games. Exactly. Like you can spend a whole session planning out what you're gonna do for three minutes. It's, it's and it, and it goes out the window in those first minutes. Exactly. <laughs> okay, they have everything planned out. I mean, I've I've seen it. It's happened. And Jolene goes, "We just spent the whole day planning." I'm like, "Yeah, I'm sorry, honey. This that's kind of like Shadow Run." I go, "Don't worry, it's all gonna go to hell." <laughs> and it did kind of. The planning did help, though. It did help. So I think uh, pacing is a is a skill, just like everything else, like voices doing this. Voices is a skill. And there's some books that I read about pacing and plot pacing, they call it, and stuff. And I don't think it helped me very much. It's it's a very weird skill to develop. I I think if you can read a book, uh, I was you know, I would suggest the the books I read, but they didn't help me. So uh, I don't want to. He doesn't want to suggest. I don't want to cite them. Uh, there is one called Hamilton's Points or something by I forget, oh my god. Anyway, uh, 
I'll put in the show notes that one. I read it. It's it's a, it has to do the with the Shakespearean one. Yeah, it has to do with the Shakespearean one. Wasn't uh, that the guy that wrote the um, the ninja one? Feng, Feng Shui. Yeah, yeah. So the book is by Robin D. Laws. Uh, I don't have the book on me. I mean, I know it's somewhere. My brother lent it to me, and I was reading it somewhere, and it's lost in my library. But look at Robin D. Laws and pacing <laughs> and plot points and stuff like that, and you'll. It has the word Shakespeare in the title. Is that Shakespeare? Or ha- Shakespeare, I'm pretty sure. Shakespeare or Hamlet. I'll put it in the show notes so you don't have to worry about it. Next thing I was talking about is a big one for me. I think this is a skill that every GM should have simply because you're going to get caught with your, I don't want to say pants down, but really you're going to get caught unawares or at a point where like, man, I didn't, pl- I didn't plan for this. I have no idea what the players are doing. And that's improvisation. I mean, I, I know I've talked about it before in previous episodes and previous yeah, episodes of our podcast. But what I really like about improvisation is that it is a skill that you can develop. It's something that you can work on. Now, I wasn't much of an improvisational GM years ago. I was a planner. I had maps. I had encountered hit points written down, everything like this. I didn't do a lot of, what is it, dungeons. Uh, but I did do a lot of planning and a lot of maps and a lot of just a lot of work that for never, the most never got used <laughs> for the most part, never got used, which is kind of frustrating. I remember I, as a kid, well, as a, yeah, I was pretty young. I drew this temple, right. And I drew this, you know, I used this graph paper and I, and I drew the temple and drew walls why does the walls have temple well because it was like a monastery as a warrior monk thing and then i never used it you know when i was 12 or 13 when i drew this years later 2001 2001 i used that monastery for my uh my new campaign for third when their third edition came out and i was exceedingly happy that i had those maps and then the idea stemmed from my, my original idea, which was a monastery, and then, and then they grew into something else. But, but at the time, for like, since I was 12 to, to uh, I don't know, I was 20-something years old when I started. So a good 10, 12 years later that I used those maps. And I was very happy about it. So improvisation. Everybody, you know, you've probably heard about it. The good thing is, is that if you live in a large city, usually there's an improvisational... Or you can watch it on TV. They have shows. They have shows. But you can actually go to like comedy sports. There's a place here in San Jose called Comedy Sports. There is uh, some improv uh, shows that they have at, at in the larger cities. In fact, I was just talking to a co-worker of mine who does not play role-playing games, but is into improvisation, right? Because I started talking. I'm always talking about games. And he goes, oh, so it's kind of like improv. I go, yeah. How do you know about that? He goes, well, because I go to improv, right? So he just signs up for imp- at this comedy stuff place, and they go and they do work on improvisation stuff. And what's my line? I think it is is, is on was on television for a while, and he says it's exactly like that. So you you can't say no. You start off with whatever the next go off with whatever the previous person stick is or their comedy skit and you just go and then the next person follows off what you build and let me tell you as a gm that is indispensable i think that's probably the skill that i use the most in every session that i run and i'm talking every session because every session these players are going to throw you for a loop it's like their job (laughs) right 
It's true. <laughs> the, the, what, the job is the players to throw you for a loop, not go where you expect them to. We plan it out behind your back, Saul. That's what we do. I think you do. I think you do because it's so often done that it's crazy. But I don't think they do it on purpose. I think it's just everybody thinks differently. And when they're presented with a situation, they're going to act differently or they're going to do something differently than you expect. And that's normal. And that's why improv is an is a important thing. If you go to conventions, a lot of conventions have improv seminars. Uh, I'm going to put a book by a, a lady that works, that works, yeah, she works in the Bay Area, but she goes to local cons. Uh, Karen Twelves, she has a book on improv. It's really good. Check it out. Uh, I'll put it out in the show notes. And then if you go to cons, they have seminars and they even have like seminars where they actually like work with you to work on your improv skills. And those are pretty cool. Also, talk to other GMs when you go to cons. And if you play in a game where the GM is just like nothing throws him for a loop. He doesn't have all that stuff planned. It looks like nothing throws him for a loop. That doesn't mean (laughs) in his head he's not going, what the hell are they doing? That is true. But you're right. And so those people who seem unfazed by all these crazy antics that the players throw at them, you know, ask them afterwards. Oh, how do you, you know, how does that, how did you do that? How did that? And there'll probably be somebody who did a lot of improv. They said, uh, that was totally not planned. I had to come up with that off the top of my head and then talk to them. I mean, I've, it seems like this is weird, right? I'm going to. Oh so God, I, <laughs> he's going <laughs> off. <laughs> no, no. But it was, but when you play in a game, especially like I run games in the evening. Because I like playing games in the evening. I play a lot of board games during the day. In the evening, I kick back and play role-playing games. And then I run role-playing games. Don't let it sound... Don't. He, he sounds like that's, you know, whatever. But he does that because when we started taking Augustine to conventions, <laughs> it was during the daytime. I'm like, you're not going to leave me for eight hours during the day and then go and play at night, too. So you get to... That's... I mean... I'm just saying. That's true. That's why I started doing that. Otherwise, otherwise I just play role-playing games all the time. And it actually made me play more board games. And now we have played quite a bit of board games and own board games. But, but what that has happened is when I play a game in the evening, after the game is done, a lot of times people just want to chit-chat. You know, because it's the end of their day. Oh, they want to talk about their they game. They want to chit chat during at during the day at the end of a game, but they probably have to get to another game because yeah. they signed up for something. Yes, so. that's true. So usually, it- but I have also found with uh, GMs, they will chit chat at any time for, with you <laughs> because they love to talk about what they do, right? And if you ask them questions about, especially like Saul saying, if you ask them, well, where, did you plan that? What did the players throw you for a loop there? Because you're sitting at the table. As a GM, and a lot of times at conventions, you're playing with a bunch of GMs, or in your regular games, you're playing with a bunch of GMs, and they're always thinking and, and looking at what other people are doing, right, to see how they can improve their skills That's as true. a GM. And I think, and I think generally, they're, in fact, the last time I ran, I just ran over Labor Day Labor Day weekend, and I ran a, a low life twenty ninety game, and after you know after the game was over, it was it was there wasn't that late, it was like eleven thirty or something like that. It ran for five and a half hours, and it was slated to be a six-hour game, so that was good. And uh, we, as I was packing up my stuff, and people were going, oh, so this lady who I never knew, who I had never met before, she's like, so, so when, when you brought the maps, was that the only time? Was that the time when it was planned, and when it, there was no map? Because she noticed that, and other players noticed that too. I would they had maps because I was running up a pre uh, a, a module, a module, 
And I didn't think about that, right? I'm like, yeah. And she goes, well, I go, no, they talked about it, but they didn't have a map. They didn't have a map for every single uh, location. So I had to come up with stuff. And she goes, oh, okay. But but they it was in the in the module. They didn't notice it. They couldn't tell, except for the fact that I didn't have a map for it. And what and what did I tell you after? Because because he could, the next day he was tell, telling me this, right? And I go, well, then you should just make a map that just sits out there anytime, so like a generic map, right? Start drawing something so they so they don't think that you that this is this is the part of the adventure that you're improving, right? Right. So I think think I did think of that. What I what I was thinking of, if I had miniatures, I would have taken my battle mat, right? Yeah. But I didn't have miniatures, and one of the reasons why was because I had these really nice pictures. If I had a little bit more time, I might have blown them up so they could be used as a battle mat. Uh, I I didn't do that, and I think it it was a clue to them, like, oh, this is part of the adventure. Or I'm not sure this is part of, it. but. A lot of it was, I would say 80% was part of the adventure and then 20% was stuff that I made up on the fly because they were asking about it, right? Like the, across the street from the action, there was a, a burger place, I called it. Do you remember the name of the burger place? No. I think it was, it was super funny. Well, I, I just came up with it on top of my head and they were just, it was, and then after I, I said it, I'm like, does it sound kind of, it sounded kind of rude. So like burgers in your face or something like that or something like that. But anyway. That I totally made up, and because they said, "Was well, there's a camera across the street that shows into the storefront that you're you're investigating?" And so they go, "Well, what's across the street?" I'm like, "A burger place." I think it was like, I forget. I got a, I got a call. Mike, Joe, Mike, if you're out there, please email me my the great name because I want to actually. You'll have to ask him because he's not going to hear this, and <laughs> then you're going to publish it. Hello. <laughs> no, I meant afterwards. Afterwards, anyway. So. Improvisation is something that you have to really hone and, and work on. I think this is probably one of the skills that that is most important because the players are always going to throw you for a loop. They're never going to do what you think they're going to do. Right. Because you can have it in your brain. I'm going to present them with this situation and they're going to go, they're going to figure this out right away and go this way. Or they're going to they're gonna ask these questions. They're not. They're going to come <laughs> up with their own stuff. They're going to ha- ask you a question that you never thought of, like, what's the name of the burger place across the street? Because you can't think of all the contingencies right. that people are going to do. So you kind of have to do some things on the fly. Right. Correct. I mean, there's, yeah, there's no way around it. And the better you are at coming up with stuff really quick off the top of your head, the better it flows for you as a GM. And it's seamlessly, right? And you know, when they asked me the name of the place, it, it just popped out of my head, my mouth. And I didn't even think about it, but then the, it was such a weird, funny n- n- name, and like, and then I was, and then I played it up, right? Because when they go in there, they're like, I forget what the deal was, but what, what I said, but it was the like the employees would use the phrase, the, the name of the place, and it was kind of rude, but uh, but it was funny, and so they all they all were laughing at the place, and and I you know I came up with the color schematic of the of the place. It was yellow and black. I don't know, like I was thinking of You were also, when you ran that game, you also had your brother and uh, your friends in it, right? Cause, right. So that probably, that always helps you personally with the improvisational stuff because I'm more they, they know whenever you say something, they'll play off of, they'll play off of it and, yeah. and go with it because they're pretty, they're, they're all like that. Right. And right. you all know each other so well that, well, you've known people for your whole life or since you were a teenager. 
and you went to school with people and stuff like that, right. it's, a, a, it's a little bit easier to be improvisational because you're more comfortable. Right. As do with comfort. There were two people I didn't know. Well, there was one lady I didn't know, and there was a, there was a guy who has been previously in my games. But it was still a fun game, and she, she said she had a blast, so I, I was, you know. And that's what I go for. I go for people I don't know who, and I try to entertain them as much as possible. So. Well, and you're, you're, when you're in your normal groups, that's the time to practice your improv, right? Yes. With the people that you play with all the time who know you, unless right. you play with people that you don't actually know. Like, you just meet them every two weeks, and you don't really know them, then, you know. There's just sometimes a lot of people play one shot groups online, and that does that may happen where you play every two weeks or something. You come up or you play in a game with a bunch of people you don't know. So usually it seems like seems like that once you you do that a few times, there's a few players you don't get along or you, they, they they cramp your style, or whatever, or even GMs do that or players do that, and then but you develop some players that you like. I mean that's what how I met Shannon. I met Shannon at a at a convention at KublaCon, and he was he was really trying to work get a network of of GMs and players that he liked. The first year I didn't know I'm like he wanted all of my information, so I'm like well, I give him my 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 email address, <coughs> and he had a group on Yahoo. I forget what he called it. This was obviously a long time ago. <laughs> What's over they don't 10 have years groups ago. Was, uh, well, on Yahoo well, anymore. Oh, yeah, over 15 years ago. It was a long time ago. And the next year I met him again at KublaCon. And he goes, oh, he goes, hey. He goes, he goes, did you ever go to my group? I go, you know what? I Honestly, I didn't. He goes, oh, it's okay. I know. And then he, But he was very, you know, he was very reasonable and very forthright about, yeah, he goes, he goes I won't say like 25%. Those are the only people that actually respond, blah, blah, blah. I go, you know what? Now I will, I will respond. I, I just Now that I've met you twice, I will respond. <laughs> and that's what he said. He goes, he said something along those lines. Not this is not what he said, but it's along the lines like, well, now you know I'm not some total weirdo. I go like, well, no, I just literally just didn't think about it, you know. And, and that is me. I don't usually, I try not to think about, I'm not try. I just don't, I am not what he, what he Jolene the, the hates this about me. I'm, I'm pretty oblivious to weirdos or whatever i'm just like oh i take people at face value and and if you tell me you're this or you tell me you're trying very to very naive <laughs> that's what she says but uh, i always i've always had this this situation where i don't know why strangers would ever lie to me but i've been proven time and time again <laughs> that strangers will actually absolutely lie to you for absolutely no reason so anyway uh so he started a group and and that's how i met him and through him i started meeting other group gms that i I mean, I always used to see GMs or players in my in games that I played in or ran every year at these conventions. And though I never really, what is it? I really never established a good relationship with these people uh, simply because it was like, you know, once a year that, or three times a year that I meet them because we go to the same three conventions here in the Bay Area. But, but, but after a few years, you finally did. Yeah, but after a few years. But, but Shannon really really cultivated this like oh you should play with the people you like and running and we run games that we like and stuff like that and so i thought it was really neat i thought it was really neat. and of course yahoo went belly up and and that group is no longer i don't think he has a group that he's he might and maybe he has he hasn't invited you to it <laughs> maybe i'm off the list <laughs> you're off the list but yeah maybe but i think uh he doesn't need that anymore because of social media came up facebook uh, instagram well he established the people that he, right well and 
And some people are very particular about the games they play in. And Shannon doesn't want to waste his time right. being in a bad game. <laughs> right. Yes. Which I totally understand because Ian and Ian and Steve played this in this game that I, Steve only stayed because of Ian, but Ian stayed because he signed up and he didn't want to be rude. Right. And I'm like, dude, you are an adult now. If you do not like the game, get up from the table and walk away. Okay. It's hard sometimes, but... I think he was the only player. But, <laughs> but the guy was like stoned, so I don't think he would have even noticed. He was, it's cool, man. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Sooner or later, if you go to cons enough, you're going to be in a terrible game. I mean, it just happens. The law of averages, right? If you go to a con, you're going to, and you play, all you do is play role-playing games. You can get into three games a day. Easy. Okay, two games a day, right? If you're really, really good at doing, of, of, of like putting yourself on the wait list and stuff, depending right. on the convention. Right. Depending on the convention, some conventions are super crowded. And like with the conventions here in the Bay Area, role-playing games are, uh, what is it, are a premium, right? You have to sign up. Usually they use some sort of shuffler, shuffler, this, this, what is it? What do you call it? It's a random generator type thing that, that there's so many people trying to get into games that it's not first come first serve, except for Big Bad Con, which does it differently. But they, they uh, shuffle Pacific Con also. Oh yeah, you're right. But they don't have a huge role playing contingent, right? Right. Right. But DungeonCon and KublaCon, who yeah. have over 2,000, 3,000 people. DungeonCon is, is notorious for, and it's not that they don't, don't try to get it, as many possible role-playing games as they can. It's just that no matter how many role-playings they get, games they have on the schedule, right. there are more people that want to play the games than there are games available. Right, and that has to do with the, what I call the Northern California Bay Area experience. So if you're out there, you're saying, well, because like DungeonCon has had like over 300 role-playing games. Yeah. The, the deal is, is that each and every one of the role-playing games is in a private room. So unlike any other convention that you will see out there, and I'm, yes, I'm making you all jealous because some people would love to play in a private room, like in a private hotel room. Each and every game is in a private room, and you're not in this massive hall with the noise going through the roof. And somebody's trying to yell their way through the mass of noise. And you got these people who are trying to invoke some creepy tale and is talking softly, which is going nowhere because they can't hear you, right? So they stick you in private rooms and there's a... Or semi-private rooms. Oh, semi-private rooms. Sometimes you have an, a, a large room that has two games in it. And if they're two quiet games, it's no problem. Or if Saul's game in it, then the other game's going to complain. And leave. When you have that kind of situation... There is a limit of how many games you can run as a convention that way because you cannot, what is it, get they, the whole hotel you, you get you get, games, You right? get that, right? But then you also have Adventures League and Pathfinder right. Society at the same conventions where they are literally in a yeah, room and it's like it's like a, any other convention. Right. Like, does G Gen Con does that? Yeah, yeah. And the other con bigger conventions. I've never been to those conventions, so I've only been to the ones here in California. Where? Northern California. Northern California. <laughs> There's a distinction. Because if you go to Southern California, they have the same style. But I have been in the Adventure League That's one, true. and it's not that bad. Right. It's just... But everybody's running Adventure League, right? Everybody's running Dungeons & Dragons. Everybody's yes. running Pathfinder. But if somebody's trying to run a moody uh, vampire game, right, it's, it may not go very well. 
Well, it might. In a, big, on the, in a big hall. Yeah. But they also have open gaming where people run their games. So Right. Right, right. So so because of that, there's a limit of how many rooms they can have. And it costs too much, a lot of money to, to run those games, put those games in rooms. What the How the hell did we get on this conversation? So improvisation, uh, I think it's a good thing that you can hone, you can... And just work on it. There's books, there's videos, and if you're lucky, go to a con and they have a seminar and even uh, uh, how to. Next on my list was I think one of the strengths that people have is artistry, right? And now art, the being artistically talented, is different for everybody. I have no artistic talent whatsoever. My stick figures are as about as good as I can get, and even them, those are pretty bad. I think uh, if you are have any any kind of talent artistic talent in that sense i think that's a bonus right you can your maps will look nicer your your handwritten letters will be really nice now i've been playing around with calligraphy for probably 20 years and my calligraphy skills are still not very good but i've done it in the past and people notice it and i'm like so it's okay for me as as a calligrapher to be able to write a nice looking letter but one it's not like super nice like i see these people like on youtube you know your friend when i try travels and these people are just like they're just their hand is gliding over the page and they're making beautiful letters and me i'm like i'm like struggling to get my nice curves curvy and my line straight but anyway so artistic talent so if you have any kind of artistic talent you can make portraits of places uh maps your maps will look look nicer uh drawing monsters or even scenes you know and stuff like that i remember we used to play with this guy called mark back in the old days and he was a graphic artist by trade that was his profession he actually worked as a graphic artist and he was just phenomenal. He put out these maps, and I'm like, wow. And he had drawings of of, of vehicles because he liked traveler, and so he and he actually came up with his own design back in the like late '80s, I think late '80s, and uh, the adjutant, I think it was called. You can still find them here and there on eBay and stuff. But he he made that. He made that from scratch, and his and that's all his art. All that's his all the vehicles in there. A lot of line art because you know he was a he was an old style graphic artist, not computer. They didn't exist back then. Well, they did, but you could you could draw with them or anything. So he was really good, and it was really neat, and and it really brought something to the game. So uh, if you have that kind of skill, I think it's something that you can play to play to and. And hone and and really and really make your game stand out. The, Jolene did come up with something called being socially adept. I think uh, also I call it the being able to are all players having a good time or being able to read the table. I call it and that's that's a that's a skill. I guess you could develop. Uh, what is it? Awareness, social awareness, and being able to read the table is a really good skill, and it will help you greatly. Uh, now I don't know how you would work on that. Try to be nice to people. <laughs> But I think uh, a lot of GMs, when they're playing, this will probably help them quite a bit to be able to read the table. You're going to see people who are not having a good time. And as a, as a GM, you might want to draw them out a little bit. I remember when I was running at my Monterey Dresden games, there was this lady there who had never played before. And she was very, very... Uh, Shy. Correct. And she didn't want to do anything. She didn't, you know, I would say, well, I would give her choices even. She goes, oh, I don't know. I go, well, just, you could do this or you could do that. And she goes, well, 
and then people would suggest something she goes okay i'll do that so and not even like my character that and then i didn't it didn't really bother me but i it bothered me in the sense that i felt that she wasn't having a good time right sort of but then uh at the end of the game she goes oh, i had a great time i go really i like i was like shocked that she said that because it seemed like well if it was her first experience right. of of role playing then she was probably very uncomfortable and she probably did have a lot of fun cause right you included her oh yeah yeah I, I really tried to and i would like her character was i made pre-made the characters for that game and so they each had like a function so they had to depend on her abilities to to move the game forward in a certain sense and and she did well i mean she rolled the dice and she and she seemed like she had fun and well at the time i wasn't sure right i'm like my and i'm pretty good at reading people i think but i was like i had no idea about this lady but she said she had a good time. She was there with somebody else who was playing. And, and they, they said, no, no, she did have a good time, blah, blah, blah. Okay. Uh, another time I had the same problem was, not the same problem, but the same situation with a brand new player. But they told me up front. This, I didn't know about that till after. And she says, oh, this is her. My friend goes, oh, I, some guy I had already played with. Oh, this is her first time ever playing any role-playing game. I'm like, oh, geez. But she was really into Star Trek. She was a Star Trek fan. So immediately that's like a no-brainer when I run Star Trek Adventures. I just throw all kinds of Star Trek tropes at people and boom, you know, they're having a good time. And she did. And you could, that one I could tell because she was getting all excited. She goes, what do I need to roll? And she would like ask me, and what can I do? I go, well, you could do this or that. I'm gonna, and she would like emphatically, emphatically yes. state what she wanted to do instead of like, well, you know, being really timid about it. So she really dove in head first and it was really neat. Uh, that was pretty cool. So I don't know how you would work on that skill. Just be aware about players who are not talking. I don't think you need to work on it. I think you need to use it by paying attention to the right. players I think that's at the table. Just pay attention to the players at the table. So all of these skills are things that you can work on. If you're really good at artist artistry, then you obviously you, you push that or you really work on that and push that in your game. But don't doesn't mean you should ignore everything else. In fact. Uh, the best GM is somebody who's well-rounded, right? Who who can, you know, maybe I'm not that talented as an artist, but I can certainly find people who are and and copy their stuff and put them in my game, right? And I think that's one of the ways you can bypass being a good artist is by finding people whose art you like and emulates the game that you want to run. Other skills, there's no way around it, right? Improvisational, pacing, socially adept, uh, socially reading the, the, the table. All those are skills that you have to build yourself, uh, either by, uh, I don't know, but reading books, uh, watching videos, and stuff like that. And I think when you do that, then you will be a much better GM, and people will love your games. And when you go run a game at a convention, like people do, there'll be like a waiting list on your on your games. You know, people at, at DungeonCon especially, right, they, they put out the game uh the who gets into the game on this big board right and online now now that they've gone technical and it actually states how many people r r try to get into your game and the, and you know shannon and his buddies his friends which i guess i am one uh he they all get together or not to get together but they brag about how many people were were trying to get into a game not only that but it also tells you how many there's this thing called priority when you do anything for the convention they give you a priority slip that kind of gives you a boost in the chances of you getting into a game. And they count how many people use a priority 
uh, slips, they call them, to get into your game. So they so not only is there the number of people who ask to get into your game, there is the number of priority slips they they use to get into your game, which I guess means that you're really high, highly sought after as a GM. Or maybe the, ga- the game you're running is really something they, that's really popular. Because I remember years ago, Serenity was a really popular RPG, and everybody was trying to get into those games. And, of course, it was only like three or four games the whole weekend, and so they were always full and stuff like that. So you get into that. I think it's pretty neat. I think if, I think if, you, if, th- if that's a, a measure of how well you are liked or received as a GM, that's pretty cool. Or just that there's people in your game. Does it matter? No, 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 it doesn't matter. As long as you have a full table, and even as I don't even care if I have a full table, I've ran with as many as little as like two or three people. So maybe I'm not top GM, but anyway, I think if you work on the things you're not so good at and uh, you really push forward on the things that you are good at, I think you'd be very, be a very successful GM. This is Gaming Perspectives with Saul and Jolene. You have a good day.